Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome, everybody. Um, uh, welcome to our session on the Supreme Court's ruling on the Affordable Care Act, or if you don't like it, Obamacare. Um, and Romneycare. We are fair and balanced at Berkeley. Anyway, uh, last there, and first, this session, by the way, is sponsored uh, uh, by the Goldman School of Public Policy, uh, which is footing the bill, uh, and I thank my dean, uh, by the Robert Wood Johnson uh, postdoctoral program in uh, healthcare, and uh, thirdly, by the law school, which has kindly given us this room. Um, And last Thursday, obviously, the Supreme Court released its opinion on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, In my view, the decision represents another step in the, what I would call, the hundred-year-old struggle by those, uh, I say, on the left, to provide as close to universal access as possible to control the costs of health care and to improve the quality of uh, the provision of health care. The purpose of today's event is to begin a conversation on about the case and to continue a conversation on these issues. Uh, to me, the case is fascinating because it involves everything almost. Uh, it certainly involves major issues of constitutional law, um, which we'll get to. It involves major issues of the economics of health care and incentives thereof. It involves ma- major issues on the implementation of a complex law that's trying to change a major a part of American society, over 15% of the economy, and it's all about politics. I'm a political scientist by training, so the last, obviously, where you start is important, but it's obviously a political uh, event. Uh, we've put together a panel with experts who can speak on each of these points and issues. Our goal today is to begin a discussion. Each panelist will speak, hopefully, for less than 10 minutes, And then we will open it uh, for questions and a discussion uh, among the panel and between the panel and you folks. Uh, The panelists are, uh, let's see, going this way. I'll just go this way. I know where everybody is here. A different order than I wrote down. Uh, But the first one is Professor Jesse Choper of Berkeley Law, here at Berkeley Law. Professor Choper is the Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the law school here. And he's a distinguished scholar of constitutional law and obviously can speak uh, to the Commerce Clause and the interpretation of the Commerce Clause and other parts of the decision. Uh, next, uh, Professor Choper, is um, uh, Professor Shortell, Steve Shortell, who is the dean of the School of Public Health here at Berkeley. Moreover, um, he has a nice title, the Blue Cross of California's Distinguished Professor of Health Policy and Management, a major player being Blue Cross. Uh, Steve is here uh, because he's an expert on the implementation of health care and health care reform. He's been a major actor uh, in efforts to bring about health care reform. He, he knows an awful lot about the exchanges, and he's also been a major player uh, nationally on doing uh, stuff to increase the quality of the provision of health care and also measuring that. Uh, next to Steve is Professor Brad DeLong, uh, who's an economist in the economics department here. Um, like all economists, Brad can speak on everything, uh, and will at the drop of a of a pin hat. Uh, 
he also has a, uh, I was told by one of our alums that the only thing that's good at the Goldman School or at Berkeley is Brad DeLong's blog. That's the only influence we have on Washington. And so everybody knows Brad, and, and he's a person of uh, significant opinions. Um, then we have two uh, experts, uh, law school faculty experts on health law. Uh, the first in terms of the order is Anna O'Leary, who uh, among her many uh, activities is a lecturer on health law here at, at the Berkeley Law School. Next to her is Anne-Marie Marciali. I'll, I'll pronounce that terribly. Um, she's been a lecturer here at Berkeley. She's also uh, on the faculty of Hastings Law School, and she's about to accept an appointment at the University of Missouri Kansas City Law School, where she will be an associate professor. So uh, those are the folks uh, that will speak. Um, professor Choper said that I should say something about the background of all this, and hopefully, having read the 194 pages of the case, which I recommend to you all, uh, he doesn't. They say that, but, you know, whatever. Um, let's talk about the facts of the case. Uh, the case arises from an attempt on the part of the Congress of the United States signed by the President to achieve multiple goals. And uh, the biggest goal out there is to increase the percentage of Americans who have health insurance, to increase access. Along the way, it also tries to uh, has some small provisions, uh, people disagree about that in terms of con uh, controlling or constraining costs, and it also has provisions, which the court really didn't speak to, about improving quality of health care, but maybe uh, Professor Shortell can speak to that. Um, the way the act does this is, uh, at least in many, many ways, but the two big ways is, one, to require that everybody have health insurance, okay, and to mandate that everybody have health insurance and to mandate it on an individual level. So if you do not have health insurance through your job, which is how most Americans have, have health insurance, or you don't have Medicare and therefore you have it by contributing to the trust fund uh, throughout your life, uh, the access you're going to have to get health insurance. Uh, to help you get health insurance, the Act has a whole series of provisions in it to provide subsidies to people uh, so that they could afford these health, uh, the health insurance. The Act also... Uh, calls for the provision of setting up exchanges. Think of Amazon.com, where you will be able to go and quickly learn enough about various plans to choose the best plan for yourself. Uh, states are required to set these things up. If state, states are subsidized to set them up, and Professor Shortell can speak to that, if they fail to do so, that they will, the federal government will provide an exchange for them. Okay. Uh, access is also increased basically through a dramatic expansion of the Medicaid program uh, and um, along with significant subsidies to the states that run that program. Those are the big uh, provisions. Uh, immediately, within a nanosecond, those who didn't like this, those who view this as a dramatic uh, um, intrusion, into personal freedom and all, went to court and challenged this. Uh, the Medicaid uh, part was challenged by lots of states. The official title of the case is the, uh, uh, the, the Interest Group for Independent uh, Small Business challenged it. And it was, in most cases, uh, at the appellate level, it was approved, but occasionally it was not approved, and it eventually got to the Supreme Court. And... Uh, so the court decided the following, or, um, one, uh, 
Uh, by a five to four vote, the court ruled that the individual mandate is constitutional. However, uh, it's not constitutional the way the government thought it was constitutional, which is based on the Commerce Clause. Rather, uh, five, by a five to four vote, or you'd add up the, the justices, it's uh, using the Commerce Clause is unconstitutional. And therefore, Justice Roberts, who wrote for the, for the court, said that uh, the government could rely on its powers to tax, plus things that are necessary and sufficient to carry that out, in order to have the individual mandate. Okay? So what you have in the five to four uh, decision, uh, opinion, the opinion for the court is written by uh, chief, the chief justice, but the four liberals, as you would call them, uh, would have uh, essentially justified the individual mandate based on the Commerce Clause. The Chief Justice says, no, uh, I cannot do that, but I can justify it based on the taxing power of government. Okay. Um, then there's the, they also have to deal, the, uh, the Chief Justice has to deal with a thing called the Anti-Injunction Act, uh, which basically says, can you sue before, if it's a tax act, before uh, you've been taxed? And through some logic, he says, in his view, yes. Then they, the, the opinion turns to the Medicaid expansion. Okay? And there, by a vote to seven to two, the court knocks down the mandate uh, for, that states have to expand uh, their Medicaid uh, on the grounds that uh, the, the federal government is forcing states to do something in a program that it should be shared. And even though the federal government is going to pay the total cost for it for five years and then pay 90% afterwards, um, a majority of the court, including two of the liberals, say this is going too far Okay, uh, in terms of that. Of course, uh, the five justices who upheld the act in the, behind the basic opinion, at least the individual mandate, uh, in addition to Chief Justice Roberts, were Associate Justice Breyer, Ginsburg, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Moyer, excuse me. Four justices, the four uh, people you normally think of as the conser- most conservative justices, Alito, Kennedy, Scalia, and Thomas, reject it all. Okay? Uh, they reject both the Commerce Clause. They also reject, uh, basically, using of the tax power. They also reject uh, the expansion of Medicaid. And they basically, this is a 900-page law with lots of wonderful things in it, Uh, and they basically said this law is so entangled, all the provisions are based on other provisions, that when you eliminate the core, the individual mandate and the Medicaid mandate, everything else will collapse. So in their view, the whole thing should disappear. Okay. Uh, That leads us to a bunch of questions. Okay. And I want to thank... Professor Choper for insisting that we do this today rather than Friday because it allowed those of us who wanted to to read all 194 pages of the opinion Um, and also to listen to the the talking heads out there, all of whom have opinions on this. Um, We know the following. The American people are still basically split on the support for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, that the, and for those of you who are interested in that, all the, uh, the good data on this is available online from the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, which has been doing very good polling on this. And it turns out support or opposition uh, for the ACA is highly partisan. Okay? Um, Democrats love it. Republicans hate it. 
independents are slightly negative, but then it gets to a question. Some people are negative because they want the law to go further to the left rather than further to the right. So it's basically the country is split. Uh, over the weekend, it's obvious the Republican Party and its candidate for the presidency are now committed to the repeal of the ACA. Um, the question is, what will happen in the election? Uh, will they have the votes? Uh, will they have the votes to overcome a Senate filibuster? Will they be able to use something called reconciliation, which is only for the budget procedures, which if you use that, that's a simple majority, but will that apply in this case? So we were back into the uh, arena of politics, which a lot of people think is, is where it should be in the first place. How, uh, next, next question, how will the implementation of the ACA proceed at the state level? And then we'll talk about that. Some states like California have proceeded already. Um, all my knowledge comes from NPR. Uh, this morning they had uh, little uh, things from Mississippi and Texas where the polit Republican politicians who are in the majority in both states announced no way are they going to expand Medicaid. Okay? How will that play out? state by state, how will it play out in terms of the exchanges? Mississippi has an exchange in planning. Uh, Texas does not. Uh, next question, what will the exchanges look like? Uh, Steve Shortell is an expert on that, as well as our experts on health law over there. It will obviously be different in different states. Okay. Um, now that the federal uh, Supreme Court has declared that the federal government cannot mandate Medicaid expansion, what will happen state by state? Will most states cover, even though the federal government's paying most of the cost, will the state simply choose not to cover these folks? And if the state does not cover it, what happens about the overall goal of achieving almost universal access? So uh, how close to universal, universal access will we get? What will happen to the cost? Conservatives are predicting an explosion of costs. And will the ACA lead to an improvement in quality? Those are simply a few of the uh, questions that you might uh, want to discuss. So with that, I turn to Professor Chopra. Thank you very much. I'm uh, certainly glad to participate in this uh, Berkeley uh, discussion. And um, since our time is limited, I better get right uh, to the uh, substance of it. Uh, I, I think that Professor Elwood gave a very helpful, uh, particularly helpful to people who have only 10 minutes, uh, to talk of the background uh, of what happened and actually uh, covered a number of the things that uh, I was going to talk about, which was what happened in respect to the major constitutional issues of the day. But let me, uh, let me move past that uh, and, and, and talk first about what was the overall legal, if you will, apart from consequential to the health care, uh, significance uh, of this decision, and I do it on, on, on two grounds. One was, what was the significance in terms of legal doctrine? <clears throat> Is this the end of congressional power or something like that, uh, when they say you can't regulate uh, a person's buying insurance uh, and the like? And the secondly, what, what does this tell us about the, uh, the point of view, if you will, of the, uh, the what is the ideological uh, information that we get uh, from what happened uh, in the in the healthcare case, because I must say that was the biggest surprise uh, of the uh, of the decision. Uh, not not so much that it was five to four, 
<clears throat> although uh, I think a lot of people thought that it wouldn't be because of the appearance of this uh, uh, decision that had enormous public attention. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, more, uh, as, uh, the, the most since that combination of either the affirmative action cases in the mid-1970s uh, or the uh, efforts to uh, overturn uh, Roe against Wade, also in the 1970s. Uh, so uh, what, what would happen? And uh, my, my own uh, prediction, which um, was wrong in result, but um, I usually don't talk about those, but I, I have a footnote that will s save my ego. Uh, my, 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 uh, the biggest surprise was the role that the Chief Justice played in this decision because uh, everyone thought, well, this is going to turn on the vote of Justice Anthony Kennedy, which, uh, which certainly virtually all of these important decisions, virtually all, I say that, have turned in the last, uh, in the last seven years, since, uh, uh, since t uh, uh, 2005. And he's the swing vote. Uh, and um, I, I myself thought that he would join with the four liberals in upholding uh, the health care law under the Commerce Clause, and, this is where I saved myself, that, that the Chief Justice would go along with him. Uh, and he would go along with him for two reasons. One is uh, that he is the uh, least, uh, or may, the, the, the least right-winging, a uh, right-wing leaning, least conservative leaning of the five generally conservative justices after Justice Kennedy. Uh, he is the one who is closest to the center, although he is plainly to the right of the center uh, on a majority uh, of situations. Uh, but, but he's next. But e even more so, and this is also interesting about the way the court operates. Uh, he, he, he would join because he was chief justice, uh, and uh, it had a better appearance that it would be a, a, a six-to-three decision uh, if he didn't get anybody else on the right uh, instead of just the, the five-to-four, which make, makes people believe it's all politics uh, at, the, at the court. Uh, and secondly, uh, he would have uh, the right as the senior justice, the chief justice is senior in that way, as the senior justice in a majority uh, uh, to uh, assign the opinion, uh, who is to write it. And uh, he could do that for a number of reasons, probably the most important, important being that since he was the most conservative-leaning justice on the court, it would be what's called damage control uh, and uh, be able to fashion an opinion that the others would join. They had to join because they needed his vote. Uh, uh, or at least if uh, Justice Kennedy was willing to go along with him. And, uh, and in, in fact, that's what happened, except it was a five to four uh, instead of a six to three. Okay. Uh, so how about the doctrinal significance of this? Uh, Congress's power under the Commerce Clause was limited. They couldn't for this is the This is the broccoli argument. You can't, Congress cannot force people to eat broccoli. And if we all agree uh, that they can't do that, then they can't force them to buy health insurance either. Uh, a lot of people, including me, thought that that was a, a rather formal uh, and uh, un unrealistic, uh, in a practical sense, uh, sort of distinction. But it prevailed. The individual mandate was, was held unconstitutional. So what? I would say very little. Uh, this, this did not 
predict any great limitation on Congress's power to regulate generally. Uh, because this was the first time the court emphasized in history, uh, whether it's true or not, or whether there are a couple of exceptions is another matter, uh, that Congress has ever sought to regulate someone in the way that this did, to force an unwilling person to purchase something uh, <coughs> that they didn't want to purchase. Well, if it's been so unusual for the last 200-plus years, there's no reason to think it's going to blossom into all kinds of other laws in the future. So it really has very little significance so far as that is concerned. Now, the taxing power was the other significant power here, uh, and uh, that is, that's, that's really what saved the health care law, is the taxing power, at least that part of it that was saved, uh, in, in addition to the Medicaid uh, aspect of it. Uh, uh, that was not any, uh, any uh, surprising uh, interpretation of the taxing power. The contest between uh, the five who said that it was within the taxing power, which, as Professor Elwood says, is the four liberal leaners uh, and, uh, and the chief justice, uh, was that they said it could be uh, characterized. And really, that's, what it, that's an accurate uh, uh, a word, as a tax. The four dissenters were the uh, uh, justices uh, Kennedy, uh, Scalia, uh, Thomas, and Alito, uh, said, this is not a tax. Uh, this is a regulation. Indeed, it was called a penalty uh, and uh, not an income-producing uh, matter. Well, uh, I think that's true, but I think in the long run, uh, whether it's a tax or not is very much like beauty, and that is it's in the, it's in the eyes of the beholder, and you can uh, fairly manipulate the existing rules as to that to reach any, any result that you want. So uh, no, no big deal on the taxing power. Uh, in, in terms of the, the doctrinal ongoing significance, it was, it was the key to upholding what we got of the health care law. Much more important uh, was its decision in respect to two other constitutional issues. The first uh, w w was a, a fourth issue that uh, is, is the scope of the necessary and proper clause. Everybody knows that it's there, although we don't talk about it very much. It says Congress should have the power to make all laws that are necessary and proper to carry out all of the, the, the previously listed powers. Uh, and the government and those trying to uphold the health care law took the view that, well, maybe Congress doesn't have any power under the Commerce Clause uh, to regulate uh, whether people buy insurance or not. The argument was, however... But Congress certainly has the power to regulate the insurance business. That is an interstate business by everyone's agreement. And this is simply a necessary and proper way. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ancillary way. It's simply a method and not the exercise of the basic power to do. And I uh, would say that that's been the usual doctrine. Uh, it gives, gives Congress uh, enormous regulatory power so long as they can tie it to one of the delegated powers. And for the first time in hundreds of years, or, or, or nearly that, the court put an important limitation on a necessary and proper clause. And they said, well, you, you know, of course it's true that Congress has the power to regulate uh, interstate insurance, which all of it is, uh, uh, and it is true that this is one way of doing it. 
But it is not a permissible way. Why? Because if you want to, uh, uh, if you, if you want to uh, use the necessary uh, and proper clause, what you've got to do is to use something that comes within, within uh, the delegated power. Uh, this is simply not derivative from the dele uh, delegated power, uh, they, they, they said. Now, that's been a, uh, now, if you don't know exactly what that means, you would not be alone. Uh, uh, but, uh, but they said it's one thing to say that since you already have, this is what they said. I don't make this uh, law. Uh, I'm just reporting it. They said it's one thing to say that Congress has people in prison, and uh, after they get out of prison and it's found that they are sex offenders, uh, but you know no longer criminally responsible, Congress can uh, create a civil uh, treatment for the people, which is a case they just upheld two years ago on necessary and proper clause. But the conservative justices at that point. Uh, just as uh, Chief Justice Roberts joined the opinion, but they, I, I'm quite confident he, he made the opinion to be quite narrow. And this is putting teeth into what was suggested in that earlier opinion and uh, says, look, if you can't do it directly under the Commerce Clause, more or less, and, uh, then uh, you, can't do, uh, you can't do it through the Necessary and Proper Clause. Uh, a, uh, uh, a limit on what had been unlimited congressional regulatory power uh, between 1935 uh, and 2000 uh, in the United States. Uh, could he, this, this, this law could have, uh, as they say, could have been upheld the New York Minute uh, uh, in, in those times, but those are not these times. Okay. And uh, uh, perhaps uh, at least equally important, and perhaps more so, uh, is the uh, rationale under the spending power. Uh, and, and that is, as uh, Professor Elwood said, Congress has the power to spend, all right? And if it wants to give money to the states, it can impose conditions on the money. It can say, here's a bunch of money, use it for the public schools. They, don't, they can't just say, here's a bunch of money, all right? And uh, the, the court has recognized that. That's called conditional spending. It's an enormous program in Washington for years and years and years, part of many programs. Uh, and... Uh, the, the court has said, and, and uh, these, uh, these, these conditions can be, can be burdensome. They can induce you to do it. Uh, uh, it can tell a state that doesn't much want to have Medicaid, let's assume, that uh, Congress is going to pay for 80% of it. So they say, gee, 80% will pay for the other 20%. You know, that, it's an inducement. Uh, and indeed, the most recent decision involved a statute uh, that Congress passed forcing states to lower the driving age uh, to, not forcing them, excuse me, uh, 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 saying that you should lower, uh, uh, not lower, uh, up the driving age to 21, or we're going to cut off 5% of your highway funds. And the court, in a 7-2 decision, said, yeah, that, that's just a condition. 5% of highway funds uh, is uh, not the end of the world. Here, however, and this is key, uh, to the uh, uh, to the uh, to the Health Care Act, key was a provision that said uh, that if you did not join in the expansion of the Medicaid, which in in many ways was a, I mean you, the, our, our other panelists will say how important an aspect of of it that was for marching toward uh, 
uh, universal health coverage of one sort or another. Uh, but they said, if you don't join us in this, even though we'll pay, the federal government said, even though we'll pay for the whole thing until 2017. <coughs> but if you don't join it, <coughs> it's not simply that you won't get the extra money we're allocating now for it. It won't be that you won't be able to have expanded Medicaid, but we're going to cut off all your Medicaid funds. Now, that was powerful medicine because the statistics show that that was 10 to 15 percent of the average state's budget, all right? Uh, 10 to 15 percent. Uh, that is a lot of money, uh, especially when it, uh, you, you, you go along with the expansion, even though way more, what might happen in 2017, who knows? Then it's going to get more expensive. Uh, I, I would think most states, uh, most state political figures say 2017. Huh, I'm not up for election for five years. Till then, right now, what do you think? We're nuts uh, uh, that uh, give up all this Medicaid coverage. So that was a, a fairly uh, important decision. Have I used the 10? Yep. Okay, then I'll stop. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, for a factoid, does anybody know the state that tried to hold out about the driving? Yes. No. You do. Oh, I know the state. They were the litigant no, in the case. The, the, yeah. No, no, it's not the litigant. After the case, oh, no, once, no, Vermont no. of all stupid states, <laughs> held out for a year and then gave in. Then so gave this in. is very powerful stuff. It wasn't coercive. No. It wasn't coercive. Yeah. See, they said, this they said was. Anyway. Uh, this, this, this was a, we, they, they can't say, they say, we can't exactly say when it is. But this is. It's sort of the, the you'll know it when you see it. Uh, and uh, I, I, it was. It was pretty stiff medicine. Okay. Steve, you're, Steve, what I'm going to do at the end of 10 minutes is go like this for everybody else to tell you when 10 minutes right. is up. Go okay. ahead. Okay. Okay. Great. So, so we have that background, and uh, I think a lot of us in the room are sort of asking the question, uh, so what's next? Right? So it's been ruled constitutional and Professor Chopra's indicated, and John, the context of that and some of the legal significance of that and some of the implications going forward in terms of the court. But in terms of people in this country getting health care and how this act is now going to be implemented, uh, I want to address my comments to those, those questions. And I'll, I'll do it. I would like you to keep in mind, I think, uh, three, three words of what we can expect next. It's already occurring. Lobbying, calculating, and planning. Okay? And I'll say a little bit about, uh, about each of those in, in uh, 10 minutes. First of all, the lobbying has already begun. You may recall that in order to get the act passed, the president very early on cut some deals with the hospital industry, with the pharmaceutical industry, with the medical device industry, etc that they agreed to give up billions of dollars in payments in return for the fact that if this legislation passed, more Americans would have health insurance coverage, that hospitals wouldn't have to give charity care. These people would come to the emergency room maybe still, but they would be covered for their care and so on. In exchange for that, they agreed to some of these payment cuts. They said it should be you know, done over time. Uh, they're also still recognizing that in parts of the country, safety net institutions and the fact that the uh, undocumented immigrants are not covered, it wouldn't totally 
relieve hospitals of some of the challenges of caring for people, the fact that they would not get paid, but nonetheless, it would help to some extent. Uh, given the Medicaid part of the act now that has been uh, uh, essentially saying you do not have to expand your Medicaid programs, and it remains to be seen what states will and will not expand their programs, uh, the hospital industry is already in there saying, okay, uh, you backed out of the deal, or the Congress or the uh, Supreme Court has said there's going to be strictures on that part of it, so we want to renegotiate how much these cuts are going to be. And the medical device industry will be in there and others as well. So you will see this playing out over the coming months. Remember, a lot of the administrative rules and regulations for implementing this law are still to be worked on, and that's where a lot of this lobbying will occur. Secondly, calculation. A lot of calculation is going to be going on, not necessarily in a political sense, right, uh, but in a very dollars sense, right? And so, for example, uh, given the uh, uh, expansion of the fact in the individual market that people will now have a choice in, or pay the penalty, it's pay or play at the individual level now, it's the insurance companies and others are trying to figure out how many people are going to get the coverage on the exchange. Some of it will be subsidized, uh, okay, versus pay the penalty. Who will these people be? How healthy will they be? What kinds of insurance products will they desire to have uh, on the exchange, uh, for example? And they're beginning to run the numbers on some of this now. These are very important questions. So just to put a few numbers on this uh, early on, and uh, these at the moment are, are simply uh, so, some estimates, but uh, uh, right now the number of people buying their own plans will probably, an estimate, will increase nationwide by about 70%. This is what's called the individual market. Blue Shield has begun to do some modeling of what this means for them and using uh, some of the uh, different benefit plans and so forth, their analysis suggests that only about 24% of those with the lowest expected medical costs, in other words, the healthy ones, only about 24% will buy health insurance. While those with the highest risks, okay, based on their current health history, 99% will buy the insurance. No surprise, certainly on the 99, maybe a little surprise on the 24. These are very early numbers, and that is you know, going to be some of the concern uh, that the insurance companies will, will have. Nationwide, the CBO estimates that about 4 million will end up paying the tax. I don't know how firm that, that number is. Let's bring it here to California, and John referenced the California Health Benefit Exchange. Uh, it's a five-member board. We were the first state to get out the gate. They've been doing a lot of planning uh, on this. Uh, it's estimated here in California we will add two to three million Medi-Cal patients uh, under the expansion. We will go ahead. We're going to expand Medi-Cal uh, here in California. That will add two to three million. Of the five million uninsured in the state who are not eligible for Medi-Cal, uh, and can now buy the coverage. Three million of these are eligible for subsidies. So three million of the five million will have their insurance subsidized, uh, and it's on a sliding scale between 130% and about 400% of the federal poverty level. 
Uh, two big issues facing the uh, California Benefits Exchange, and I'll say more about it uh, shortly, uh, the issue of enrollment outreach. We're, as you know, an extremely diverse state uh, in so many ways, and uh, how to communicate uh, to the 5 million and how to make sure they understand what the enrollment periods are, what's uh, on the exchange in terms of understanding the information and so forth is going to be a big challenge. And a second big challenge is how to make it user-friendly in terms of the cost and quality data that's going to be on there. Uh, so we will see how that uh, plays out, and we'll have a um, series here in the fall and spring on implementing uh, the law here in California, which I'll say more about in a minute. But what I want to really emphasize is the following question. It is terrific. It's great. I'm sure all of us in this room agree that we have now more Americans covered with health insurance, okay, last Western country or industrialized country in the world, and we still don't have 100%, uh, but we're getting a little bit closer. The question that you and I face, and all of us, is whether or not the expanded coverage is going to be affordable in the long run. That is the central question now. How is it going to be affordable in the long run? So you hear this phrase, bending the cost curve, okay? So this legislation will not, in my judgment, reduce the rate of increase in cost. It will not reduce cost, by the way, absolutely. That's just not going to happen. We're an aging population. We like new technology, et cetera. What we're trying to do is reduce the rate of increase in cost because for almost every year except one or two in this country, the rate of increase in our health expenditures has been more than the rate of increase in our gross domestic product. We spend 18% of our GDP, uh, about twice as much as other countries that have better, better health statistics than we do. You probably know these figures. So for this to occur, there are some provisions in the legislation to try to bend the cost curve, to try to maintain and enhance quality as well. So CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is charged with conducting a number of uh, programs that are going to try to encourage what's called accountable care. And they've uh, come up with an idea around what's called accountable care organizations. And they have provided funds in two buckets for these organizations. One is called a shared savings program where providers, physician groups, along with hospitals, this is in the Medicare population now, if they can provide that care for less than a predetermined expenditure target, they share in the savings. The providers do, the hospitals, the doctors, along with the Medicare program. It's called the Shared Savings Program. There's a second program called the Pioneer Program. And these are for organizations that are more advanced in their ability to manage care. And in these programs, they go at risk for the downside, for the loss. In the other program, they're protected initially from the loss. But in the Pioneer Program, again, capitated so much per member per month, they have the budget up front. And if they can manage the population for that, terrific. Okay, they can decide how they're going to split the residual, the earnings. If they can't, they're at risk for the downside as well. That's on the federal side. Then where a lot of action is, is in the private sector, where there's probably a couple hundred developing accountable care organizations, maybe between two and 400 around the country. We are 
doing some work here at Berkeley on those in conjunction with other colleagues. Here in California, there's probably at least 2021, if not more, active accountable care organizations going on. So these are contracts being signed between doctors and hospitals and insurance companies. Okay, we have six or seven big insurers here in the state of California. So one way to think about this is in terms of incentives and capabilities. The incentives to change physician and hospital behavior, okay, to do those things that we really need to keep us healthy, repair our health when we need it, but how do these organizations develop the capabilities to respond to those incentives? So let's think of it in terms of incentives and capabilities. So let me just indicate some of the things that I think are going to occur that give a chance of slowly bending the cost curve over time and preserving the coverage and the expansion that we've talked about so far. The big one, change payment. Get rid of fee-for-service. Okay, it's toxic. Okay, it leads to a lot of unnecessary care. This has been documented in a lot of studies. Move towards capitated payments, so much per member per month. Move towards what's called bundled payment for certain conditions. You have a lump sum for both the hospitals and the physicians, and they now have a common incentive to work together to reduce the readmissions, which is going to eat into their revenue, but also benefits you and I. If we don't need to be back in there, keep me out of there, okay? Let's reduce the hospital infection rates and so forth. So changing the payment big time. Tiered insurance premiums on the exchange, giving you and I an incentive to choose the high-quality, low-cost providers. We get a discount, okay, on our premiums or our coinsurance if we choose more cost-effective providers. That's called tiering, and that information will, will potentially be made available. Transparency in terms of cost and quality data, big time. Administrative simplification. If you're a physician practicing in California now dealing with these seven different insurance companies and Medicare, I'm down to one minute, John says here, I'll wrap up. Uh, You know, you've got to fill out a lot of different forms. It's it's kind of crazy. Uh, Why can't we agree on some just basic standardization is another area. And then really expanding uh, the accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, and reorganizing the delivery system. Electronic health records, big time. Okay, probably some data we and others have about 34% of physician practices in the United States have some form of electronic record capability. That may be a little optimistic, but when you look at what they use it for, essential functions, that drops to about 13%. Okay, and often the electronic health records of the doctor's office can't communicate with the hospital, for example. Greater investments in primary care are certainly uh, needed as well. There's a creation of something called a Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, that's going to do studies on the more cost-effective interventions that promote health and then dispense that information to providers and insurers. Uh, Insurers aren't required uh, to cover certain procedures that are more cost-effective, but at least that information will be available to them. And finally... You can do all this reorganization of the delivery system, and that's sorely needed. But most of all, what we have to begin doing is reducing the burden of illness on the healthcare system to begin with. And that's when you're talking about the underlying physical and social determinants of our health. You tell me where you live. 
or where you've lived in your developing years. And I can be pretty accurate in predicting your current and future health status and your life expectancy. You live in Hunters Point in San Francisco. Your life expectancy is automatically 10 years less than in other parts of the city. You live in certain parts of Oakland versus the hills, 10 to 12 years difference in life expectancy. Same in Richmond, depending on where you live in Richmond. So there's $10 billion in the Affordable Care Act for disease prevention and health promotion, and it's going to be a hell of a fight to keep it there, okay? Because the Republicans, depending on how Congress is going to go in the election, are going to fight to chop that and use it for other purposes. So I'll wind up with that and look forward to our discussion. Okay. And they're going to have a whole series of panels next year talking about these various issues, yeah, right? Yeah, if I can say just a word about... Just. Just a quick word, because you'll want to know, but there'll be a five-part series next year sponsored by the School of Public Health, School of Public Policy, the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Scholars Program on implementing health reform in California. And our first speaker is going to be Peter Lee, the director of the California Health Benefit Exchange. So we'll get the information out on that, but that'll go on throughout the year, what it's going to mean for us here in California. Okay. All right. Our next speaker is Brad DeLong, professor of economics. So say three points. First point, a footnote to Professor Choper's presentation, something he knows much better than I do. Um, The Affordable Care Act said, expand Medicare to federal specifications that we, the feds, will keep paying our old share of Medicaid plus 100% of the costs of the expansion for the first five years and 85% thereafter, or drop out of Medicaid entirely. You know, a take-it-or-leave-it offer, either do expanded Medicaid or drop out of the program. The justices, by 7 to 2, said this was unduly coercive. This is remarkable in the context of the 7 to 2 decision in South Dakota versus Dole, holding that the federal government can reach into states' core 21st Amendment powers to regulate alcohol, which are specifically reserved to the states by the 21st Amendment, and tell them to raise the drinking age or lose all their federal highway funds. The relationship between the drinking age and highway funds is much, much more tenuous than the relationship between old Medicare and Medicare expansion. Um, And, you know, the um, kind of... The fact that the one is take it or leave it by 7 to 2 is unduly coercive and the other is not um, is quite remarkable, um, an indication of how much the law is changing of how large this constitutional moment is. Second point, um, Obamacare is Romney care. The reform plan Mitt Romney proposed as governor of Massachusetts is the reform plan Obama adopted. No office-holding Republican complained that Romney care was bad policy or would destroy the economy or was unconstitutional or whatever, as long as it was the signature policy initiative of a Republican governor. But when it became the signature policy initiative of a Democratic president, um, nearly every single Republican in office changed their mind. When a state government requires people to buy insurance, they said, that's an assertion of the profoundly conservative principle of personal responsibility. But when a federal government requires that people buy insurance, they said, that is big bad government, the liberal nanny state, and unconstitutional. And never mind that the centerpiece of Bush's Social Security privatization effort was an individual mandate to regulate inactivity to require that people who had not established their own private requirement accounts do so. 
and dollars will get you donuts that had the issue of inactivity reached this crop of justices in the form of a challenge to a Republican mandate to purchase retirement accounts rather than a Democratic uh, mandate to purchase health insurance, the Republican justices would have voted the other way, as I would believe they would have voted the other way had Mitt Romney won the 2008 presidential election and then proposed Romney care. Um, Go figure. Akhil Reed Amar of Yale said a couple of weeks ago that if the court did not uphold the ACA under the Commerce Clause, that his career had been a waste, that he ought to have been doing constitutional law not as an autonomous discipline, but as a sub-branch of political science, um, that he ought to have taken as his model not doctrinal scholars like Alex Bickel, but instead legal realists like Fred Rodell and company. Um, but I think even our legal realists of past generations would have been astonished by last Thursday. That is, in past constitutional moments, you know, Miranda, Brown, Jones and Laughlin, Lochner, Dred Scott, whatever, the stakes have been partisan, yes, but the stakes have always also been moral and properly political, you know, big decisions on deep questions about what kind of country America is going to become. The last time the Supreme Court was this divided um, was during the Roosevelt administration. We had the three musketeers of Stone, Brandeis, and Cardozo on the left, um, the two moderates, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes and Owen Roberts in the middle, and the four right-wing horsemen, McReynolds, Van Deventer, Butler, and I'm blanking on the fourth, um, on the right. Um, Now, never mind that the four horsemen begged Herbert Hoover not to appoint Cardozo to the court, because Brandeis was already one kike too many. Um, When they struck down New Deal legislation, they did so because they profoundly thought America should not become a social democratic country and that there were big moral and properly political issues at stake. This time, our four new horsemen, market-oriented Republican justices, have struck at an approach that was supported by the market-oriented Republican presidents who appointed them, that was thought up by market-oriented Republican ideologues at the Heritage Foundation to be the market-oriented Republican approach to keeping the market-oriented private health insurance system from collapse. The legal realists understood that Supreme Court justices are for the most part moral and political actors first and text and precedent-oriented legal technicians second, but they would have been astonished to see justices who are, for the most part, neither precedent and text-oriented legal technicians nor moral and political actors, but mere partisan weather vanes um, swinging with their party's wind. Um, And if you look at Scalia's shift between, say, Gonzalez v. Raich, saying that, of course, the federal government has the power under the Commerce Clause to keep cancer patients from getting marijuana to relieve their pain, even if they grow it themselves, um, to this current... Um, Somebody's leaning on the light. Yes. Um, to this current kind of court, the change really is, um, the change really is quite remarkable. Um, so that's the legal doctrine here, um, and that frightens me. Now, my third point um, is also Obamacare is Romneycare. It thus, as a substantive economic and health regulatory policy, has Romney Care's weaknesses. 
It does not allow us to see if people would find a Medicare-like public option better than bargaining with private insurance companies. The absence of a public option means people can't vote with their feet for what kind of form of coverage and organization they find most fits their needs. It hands a lot of market power to near-monopoly insurance companies in thinly populated states whose desire to raise rates has, in the fact, been curbed by the idea that people will then drop out and simply use the emergency room. It requires state-level bureaucracies to be functional and effective when a lot of state-level politicians have laid down political markers that the reforms will fail. It assumes that Medicaid can grow by two-thirds, maintain its sub-market reimbursement rates, and still attract doctors and nurses and technicians. Um, And last, the ACA's critically important long-run efficiency-increasing provisions rely on six largely untested bets. First, that Congress will allow the tax on high-cost health plans to go into effect over the next generation, even though it is a constructive repeal of the much-loved tax preference for employer-sponsored benefits. Second, that Congress will allow bureaucratic mechanisms like the Independent Payment Authorizations Board to actually recover control of the reimbursement system for doctors from the groups of specialists who have currently subjected it to regulatory capture. Third, that the bet on evidence-based medicine and comparative effectiveness um, will bring cost and quality in the U.S. as a whole within shouting distance of best practice as found in places like the Mayo Clinic. Fourth, that large for-profit providers and also sociological groups of practitioners will not find additional ways to game the system and grab market power and exact tolls. Fifth, that demand will create its own supply, that we can double the amount of health care currently received by our 40 million presently uninsured and do so without demand for health care outstripping the ability of our doctors, nurses, and technicians to provide it. Um, vacuum up healthcare professionals from the rest of the world as fast as possible through H-1B visas seems to be the implicit strategy. Six, that the exchanges will actually work as benefit departments for those who do not work for large bureaucracies and already have a benefits department. Now bets one and two are bets on us. They're bets on what kind of future Congresses we are going to elect. And the preliminary evidence from Romney Care in Massachusetts on bets three through six is very hopeful. And the fact that that was hopeful was, I think, one decisive factor leading the White House health care policy team led by Nancy and Min DeParle to say this is the bet we should take. There's already a state that's walked this road, and it looks to be walking it with great success. Um, but the dive is less difficult in Massachusetts than in the country as a whole for a lot of reasons. And the success of Romney Care in Massachusetts is only preliminary. So I am hopeful but worried. Okay. Great, thank you. I will, uh, Shall I go? You go. You're on. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you. This has been wonderful to listen to my colleagues. I wanted to um, bring it back to the basics a little bit. I'm going to talk about Medicaid expansion, but I want to remind people about why we passed this law and give you some of the implications about Medicaid expansion. So we passed this law to increase access to health insurance in this country and to try to um, bend the cost curve. Uh, Steve Shortell talked a little bit about bending the cost curve. I'm going to talk about trying to increase access. Uh, just as a reminder, right now in this country, uh, we have 50 million people who are 
uninsured. The um, basis behind the Affordable Care Act is that through all of the changes and innovations in the Affordable Care Act from requiring employers, large employers to offer health insurance by providing um, health insurance through these exchanges and providing subsidies so people could afford them, providing help to small businesses, and by expanding Medicaid, that we would be able to cover 32 million of those 50 million. So we're not covering everybody who's uninsured. A lot of those people, for example, are uh, in this country uh, illegally. Uh, but we are going to cover 32 million of the uninsured. Of those 32 million, I want to remind people that 17 million of those um, come through the Medicaid expansion, meaning that about more than half of the people that we're intending to cover is we're intending to do it through the Medicaid expansion. Uh, John mentioned his NPR uh, news story this morning that Texas and Mississippi have um, said that they are not going to participate. Florida has also said that. So two of our largest states, Florida and Texas, have said they are not going to uh, participate in the Medicaid exchange, uh, excuse me, the Medicaid expansion. So what I want to talk about today is I want to give you a little reminder about what Medicaid is, and then I want to talk about the implications for the states that opt out, the implications for the states that stay in, Brad just mentioned that we have some serious problems in Medicaid. We offer uh, uh, below market reimbursement rates to the doctors who do participate. I want to talk about that. And then thirdly, I'm just going to mention what the congressional reaction could be to some of these issues. And I'll tell you a little bit about what the opinion said and what Ginsburg's dissent said to the opinion. So a reminder about Medicaid. I think um, it's important to understand what we're talking about. People know uh, Medicare and Medicaid, oftentimes they get them confused. Remember, Medicare is a national federal program covered entirely by the uh, federal government, funding by the, by the federal government. Medicaid is a cooperative federalism program. We pay in part by the federal government and in part by states. So here in California, for example, about uh, for our Medi-Cal program, about 60% of our Medi-Cal program is covered by federal dollars and about 40% of it is covered uh, by state dollars. In California, it's also important to understand that, like many states, it used to be that our biggest spending dollars uh, at the state level were in education. Our now biggest spending dollars in, um, in the country, in our states, uh, is in health care. So in California, about 19% of our uh, state budget is uh, as a result of Medi-Cal. Uh, so that's really important to remember as, you, as we go forward. So Medicaid uh, started in 1965. It was intended to cover um, what they uh, call the ca categories of certain poor people. So it covered uh, the blind, the disabled, the elderly poor. Uh, it later was expanded to cover pregnant uh, women and to cover children. So that's an important understanding. Uh, one of the dis debates in the opinion was whether or not the expansion was a new category or whether it was an entirely new program. So if you look at the reality of how this is being implemented, in some sense it's a new category, which is to say that what we're now doing is we're not only covering those categories of people, but we're saying that if you are not covered by one of those categories, but you are you are, your income is 133% of the poverty line or lower, we are going to cover you through Medicaid. So for a single adult, that's somebody who's making about $14,000 a year. So it's really quite poor. We're going to make sure that you get covered through Medi-Cal. So this is really important, particularly to, um, frankly, to single men, uh, because uh, it's often those are the people who, poor single men, who are not uh, being able to get covered in our country right now. So that's one of the, the big implications. 
Um, so what, is, what was happening in this opinion? What was this debate about? Uh, Professor Chopper started by talking about this spending clause. I'm not going to repeat what he said, but remind you that this is the, the debate was whether or not the expansion to Medicaid was coercive. So remember, the existing program, there's a range of how much the federal government pays, but it pays anywhere between 50 and 83%. Under the new program, anybody who's newly eligible, the federal government said, I'm going to pay 100% of that bill for the first three years. We're then going to ramp it down to 90%. The question in the minds of some is, will Congress continue that commitment at 90% there on after, forever going forward? And that's some, one of the bets that people are thinking about as they, as they move forward. Um, so what happened in this uh, conversation was uh, justice, uh, uh, just the Chief Justice, um, who was joined, interestingly, by Justice Breyer and by Justice Kagan, two of the more liberal members of the court, said this has gone too far, which is that you can put conditions on spending at the federal level, but you um, cannot be so coercive. And the reason this is coercive is that what, the, what the, this law says is that if you don't do this expansion, if you don't cover this new population, we're going to take away all of your Medicaid money. So in California, that would mean we're going to be taking away, you know, the 60% of the money that we spend uh, in your state uh, in Medicaid. And that is terribly coercive, and that's the problem here. So what, um, there were basically three assumptions that uh, the Chief Justice made when he uh, made this ruling. One is that he basically said Medicaid's, this, this expansion isn't really an expansion of Medicaid. This is really an entirely new program. And so what you're doing, Congress, is you're saying that if you don't adopt this new program, then we're going to take money away from an old program. And that is coercive and problematic. Secondly, what he said is that this expansion was not foreseeable by the states. While Medicaid allowed for you to uh, allow, it made sure that it said that when you accept this money, states, we have the right as a federal government to alter, amend, or repeal Medicaid. He said, despite that, this is not uh, something that was anticipated. And then third, that the loss of the funding is so large that states really have no choice but to accept this, so therefore it's coercive. So uh, Justice Ginsburg, in her dissent, tried to uh, uh, about some of these concerns and said, you know, listen, this is really not a new program. Look at what's happening here. This is really a new category of covered. This program was always intended to cover the uh, needy, uh, the poor in, in need of uh, health care. And so this is really a, a truly an amendment to that program. It is an expansion. It's something that they could have understood. So that's where the crux of the argument was. But nonetheless, this, um, what, the way that they uh, came to an agreement is that the dissenters, the more conservative justices, they would have actually said that um, as a result of this uh, finding of unconstitutionality, you would have had to throw out the entire Medicaid expansion. The way that uh, the Chief Justice saved the program is he said, well, there's a, what they call a severability clause uh, in this uh, provision. And so what that means is that if you find one part of it um, severable, you can save the rest. And he found the part that was severable is the penal penalty, which is that if you don't do this program, the penalty is that we'll take away all your Medicaid money. He says, well, that's the part that um, we, can sever, we can sever off. We, you can't do that. You, have, you can expand Medicaid. You can take the money, but you can't have the penalty. And so the debate now is whether or not 
uh, states will do it because there will be no penalty if they don't. And so that's, uh, that's what's going on here. So what's happening in the states? Let me talk about the three different scenarios. So there are the states who are saying they're not going to do this. And really large states, we're talking about Florida and Texas, saying we're not going to do this. So the way the law was written is that it did assume, unfortunately, that um, all states would accept this. And so um, what's happening now is that some states uh, will still be able to, all states will still have an exchange in which people will be able to get subsidies um, in purchasing insurance. But the way the exchange provision was written is you only are able to um, purchase on the exchange if you are above the federal poverty line, so 100% or above. If you're below the federal poverty line, then you cannot actually participate in the exchange. You don't get the subsidies. So for those people who are kind of on the uh, more wealthy edge of the poor, which is your 100% to 133% of federal poverty, you now will actually be able to um, go into the exchange in your states if your states don't expand, expand, expand Medi-Cal. But those who are truly poor, 100% or below, and they don't fit into one of those, pre, those categories that already existed, they are out of luck in their states. And that is a very serious uh, policy problem that we have on our hands. So I want to um, have people realize that. Now, let's just talk about California for a second. California is one of the states that will indeed accept, we anticipate, and I can't imagine anything that wouldn't allow us to accept the um, gift of the federal government giving us 100% of the money to expand our population. But that doesn't mean that we don't have problems down the road, and I want us all to recognize that as a real issue, which is to say that we already are having tremendous strains in our Medi-Cal program. There was another Supreme Court decision that got much less attention this year uh, called Douglas uh, versus Independent Living Center of Southern California. That's my timer up. Uh, One more minute. Um, Which is to say that uh, the the other uh, case that was going on was regarding the fact that the um, government, the state government, reduced the uh, provider reimbursements in California. So when you get Medi-Cal fee-for-service, your doctor gets reimbursed. They they reduced that by 10%. And the question in that case was a a question about whether the people suing had the right to sue. But I think importantly, it's important to remember that there's this ongoing debate in California about the stress and strain on our our state budget on Medicaid. So even though we will be getting the 100% coverage and then down to 90%, when we go down to 90%, that is not um, something to sneeze at. That is going to be a strain on our state budget. And it's not certain that even in blue states that we um, will this will be a certainty going forward. And so I want people to remember that. And then the final point I'll make is that we have to think then about what is the congressional reaction? What are the constitutional possibilities? One of the things that Ginsburg pointed out is she said, you know, this is ironic that you're saying that they couldn't amend it in this way because what if they had just stricken all of Medicaid and said, uh, let's let's make a a Medicaid part two, Medicaid two, version two, uh, done the whole thing over again and made clear to states that this was the deal we were putting forward, wouldn't you be able to do that? Is that a possibility? Maybe if we had a a Democratic um, Congress that went along with it. She also said, listen, Medicare is constitutional. You could just make this a federal program. Uh, That's a possibility as well. So there are constitutional possibilities. The question is whether there's a political will to uh, make those possibilities a reality. So let me turn it over to my colleague. And um, there's much more to say about the health exchanges as well. Uh, But I think important for us to remember that Medicaid expansion is a tremendous, about half of the people we're trying to cover are through the Medicaid expansion. Thank you. Thank you. Anne-Marie, you're on. 
So today's topic, as presented to me, was the Supreme Court's decision on the Affordable Care Act. What next for health care reform? So I'll try and honor that subject. I always tell my students, follow the call of the question, but let me wallow for a minute, okay, before I become forward-looking. How wrong was I? Right? Very wrong. Okay. I was wrong on the idea about the individual mandate. Um, and then, more importantly and more significantly, I was wrong on Medicaid in that I thought it would be upheld without a doubt, okay, in its entirety. And the fact that it wasn't, in some ways, ties into what answered, but is even more significant. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the exchanges, and I want to talk about broccoli, okay? So what's wrong with being very wrong? I mean, what's good about that? There's good things about it. It depends on whether you embrace the optimistic or pessimistic model of wrongness, doesn't it? Does insight spring from error, or is error the death of insight? I'm thinking John Roberts lost some sleep over this as well, so I'm not alone. Okay? I think this decision has given many of us a chance to linger for a while inside the normally elusive and ephemeral experience of being wrong. Okay? Shout out to Catherine Schultz for her wonderful book, those of you who haven't read it, Being Wrong, Adventures on the Margin of Error, for that quote. Okay? So my remarks today are going to be about my most interesting error, which was not anticipating the limits on Medicaid expansion. What does this mean for the ACA? What does this mean for California? And then on what happens next, okay? Um, I'll try and interweave. This is the benefit of batting cleanup. The downside is, wow, I don't know what's left to say. The upside is I'll talk back to them a little bit, okay? So why take a whack at Medicaid in this opinion? Because it's always easy to take a whack at Medicaid, because just as your faces went blank when Anne began to talk about it, it is the program, you got it, for needy, poor people. Okay? And that is why historically we have had absolutely no problem segregating them, creating what? A segregated system of finance and delivery and taking a whack at it periodically. Why is it significant that the ACA even attempted to? to expand Medicaid to poor single men because they're not in the classical sense what? The worthy poor. You knew that, right? They're not worthy. This is really old stuff. I teach the poor laws at this point in my course, okay? Because that's how far back it goes, all right? Can't be ugly and can't be unworthy, all right? And we still see the resonance of that in how we talk about health care for poor people. Okay, what's even more significant than the attempt, and at this point, I guess the success or moderate success in extending health care to poor single men is those single men are poor because of what? Behavioral and mental health challenges. And the ACA has as part of its minimum benefits. You get it. It's brought home behavioral and mental health care. Now, that's a Copernican revolution. Okay, so not only do we bring them home, but we say... And we actually have some idea about what ails you and are interested in addressing it. Okay? So I call this flexing Medicaid under the ACA. What's a Medicaid opt-in? Well, it turns out Medicaid has a long history, a long storied history of opt-ins. In its origins, it didn't ex- nowhere meet the scope of now. Pregnant women are a later addition. Many of the family and children programs are a later addition. We tinker with Medicaid for our own agenda and our own reasons relentlessly. And the federal government regularly sweetens the pot to try and entice the states to participate in whatever the sort of opt-in of the year is. And you should know that those percentages can vary. 
okay, and historically have varied depending on how much we wanted to sort of urge, or use the word coerce, people to come forward, states to come forward and participate. So in some ways, Chief Justice Roberts is a genius, taking what is essentially uh, a program that is mandatory and turning it into an opt-in. Well, that's those of us who speak Medicaid speak. That's a really common scenario. We know all about how those work. States opt in and opt out all the time at different percentages, and it would be hard for them to argue that it was unduly coercive because they choose, they pick and choose among these all the time. In California, those of you who know anything about Medicaid, we have a relatively historically in flush times, a relatively rich Medicaid program. What do we offer that's not core Medicaid? Dental, right? Those of you who read the newspaper will notice California retrenched on dental with the downturn and did this, and this is one of the things I love about California, completely publicly and unapologetically. We have to balance the budget. Time to take dental out of Medicaid. Even more, California said, we have to balance the budget. Time to make it harder to get on to Medicaid, even for those who are eligible. How do we do that? We make the application procedure onerous, shaming, difficult for people with dependence or responsibilities for others, okay, and require a lot of documentation. And then most significantly, and this is California's favorite mechanism, okay, for controlling Medicaid enrollment among the eligible, we're all on the same page here? Keeping that lid down so that the people who are eligible do not come forward and claim it is we say, and you've got to update this information at really speedy intervals, like every 30 days. So you've got to go through the whole drill all over again. Okay? So that's how we do it. And we do it unapologetically. We write it in line items in the budget. We're all California citizens here, and most of us, I think we need to know this. The best thing about this decision might be to get people talking about Medicaid and what we do to it. So it's not a pretty story, but this manipulation or, you know, of Medicaid is something we are, and turns out, experts at. All right? So in some ways, it's genius. So if it's going to become a Medicaid opt-in, how is that different from expansion? Well, because it'll be optional. So it's, in many ways, if you go to 20,000 feet, you can see that this was a decision that was about what? Federalism. Predominantly, on this point, about federalism. Right? And Medicaid is often called a cooperative program because it is jointly funded okay, uh, through the state and the federal government. Will it feel any different to new Medicaid enrollees? We already figured that out. Depends on where you live. So something that hasn't been discussed today that I think it can add value, I've, I hope I've added value by letting you know that what I call the shenanigans, but the overt shenanigans of how we, we manage to try and control our Medicaid enrollment. The other way we try and do it is that every state under existing Medicaid, not the proposed federalized Medicaid, but existing, sets its own eligibility levels. I'm here from about five minutes into an appointment at the University of Missouri. In the state of Missouri, you have to be less than 19% of the federal poverty level to qualify for Medicaid. You heard me, 1-9%. Pretty strict. Right? That's a good way also to contain your enrollment. Has anybody thought about the fact that I call it the ice cream cone, the free ice cream cone? Hey, would you like a free ice cream cone? Who wouldn't? Right? Because I'll pay 100% of it. But all the people who were originally eligible for Medicaid in those states, and that includes us, are also going to come forward, not just the people who are newly eligible. And you understand that government, the federal government is not going to pick up 100% of the cost for those individuals. 
That's why Florida's talking out of both sides of its mouth. Unlike you, I heard the Florida governor on the day of the announcement saying, no, 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 the next day, we're thinking about it. Why? Well, one reason you would have two opinions in two days is, well, first of all, Eliza Bennett is right in uh, Pride and Prejudice when she says, in such things, it's unpardonable to have a good memory. So she's right for one, okay? You know, and talking about health care and talking about Medicaid, it's unpardonable to have a good memory. But for another reason is that Florida's snowbirds, you know what that is? That tipping feeling you feel right now, right? Is everybody on the eastern seaboard who moves to Florida to get to warm weather as they age? Strain the Medicaid budget of that state unbelievably, okay? Especially if they have to take some form of institutional living and institutional care. Well, yeah, I think Florida's going to think about it, okay? Um, What else can I tell you? Well, it turns out that the exchanges are a kind of you'll do it or I'll do it kind of approach for those of you who don't know. So all of this, well, we're not even necessarily going to have an exchange. I made you a really nice PowerPoint, but I can't show it to you. I'll tell you, at this point, I was going to show you three flavors of ice cream cones, okay, which is how I've been explaining it to people over the past few days, right? You can have a chocolate ice cream cone, design it yourself, the state, or you can have a vanilla, the Fed is going to give everybody vanilla, step in and create the exchange if the states refuse, or actually you can have a twist, kind of like down there at Foster's or whatever, because it turns out you can also make a hybrid option, okay, which is little discussed, and I actually suspect a lot of the hanging back states will take this option, where the federal government will perform many of the functions. I mean, think about the exchange. It isn't just a marketplace. It's also going to be a place where what? People appeal decisions are made about eligibility. A lot is going to happen there. Okay? It's actually a fairly significant infrastructure. So I think we're going, to, we're going to start to see it. Now, you might say, if I'm from a state that doesn't really want to have an exchange because I don't want all those people coming forward who are eligible under Medicaid under the original program, then you're not really offering me an ice cream cone. You're offering me broccoli. Right? Because I don't want it and I don't like it. And I suspect at the end of the day, it will be hard for states that even perceive the exchange and the Medicaid expansion as broccoli to refuse it, okay? Because the deal is so sweet. If we look at past, now that we know we have a long history of these kinds of offers, very hard to decline. But it's possible that it could be repudiated. What will that mean? That will mean, just as you might imagine, for federalism, let a thousand flowers bloom, right? We'll see very different kinds of Medicaid coverage in very different states, possibly contiguous states, which will lead to what? I believe in arbitrage. I'm thinking people are going to get up and move. And so it won't surprise you to know that the most interesting question that nobody's answered yet is, are people moving to Massachusetts to get health insurance? Okay, because... You know, that sinking feeling in your stomach, if the answer is yes, is, you know, start getting your basement ready for rental. Okay. Uh, I might post my PowerPoint someplace because I have a wonderful interactive map on exchange development so that you can see that not everybody is everybody in, everybody out. There's about 14 different possible positions, and it's really interesting to see where the states are. Finally, what does it mean to leave Medicaid's parameters to each state? Well, we said Medicaid is already very much left in its parameters to each state. So once we understand that, we understand, well, it's just going to make for some really interesting sort of demographics. So i got to show you this last one. So I thought, you know, at the end of the day, it might not be ice cream. Hey, you want a free ice cream cone? And it might not be broccoli. It might be broccoli ice cream. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay. Uh, I'm going to open it for questions. We, this is going to be uh, posted in various places. So we want your questions to be on mic. You have the mic. So uh, raise your hand, and then we'll go over and put a – why don't we start over there, because that was the, even though it's far away from you. Or give me the question, I'll repeat it. What's your question? Okay, uh, will the law impact unemployment and small business? And did the courts say anything about that, which I don't think they did. But anybody want to answer that or talk, speak to that? Well, small business was divided. You know, although they were the named uh, plaintiff on this, there was actually, a, you can imagine, it was death by amicus brief in, in this litigation, but they were actually opposing amicus briefs from, people, from small businesses instead of saying, this will kill us, this will drive them insane. We desperately want to offer health insurance to our long-term employees. We can't keep them otherwise. And from small business owners saying, I'd like to have some health insurance for myself too. Uh, pretty powerful. Um, so we have the war. I call this the war of, of small businesses. So there are some significant tax breaks to small businesses uh, who are, I hate the word, incentivized uh, to offer it. But I think a fair number may choose to participate in the exchange. That may be the economically rational alternative. Um, I think that's reasonable. I don't think that's a, a, a bad outcome. Okay, How it will work, I think we're probably going to see more sm- small business people able to offer health insurance than we have had for a long time. I, I believe that. And insure themselves and their families. So people go out of business because they need to go get a job where they can get health insurance for themselves and their family. Because not having health insurance, medical debt, is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in this country. It used to be divorce. Divorce is trump change in comparison to medical debt in bankruptcy filings. So if, even if we don't know it, people you know, in that situation, they know it. Okay, Steve first. I mean, then... just, just to add, I mean, Anne Marie's given a great example of the calculation part. They're going to calculate exactly which, which way to go. But the experience here in our own backyard in terms of healthy San Francisco is actually a fairly positive one in that regard. The employers were all concerned, the small businesses and so forth, with uh, what they're going to contribute, that they couldn't hire people, all this, that, and the other thing. And the early evidence is that just did not occur. But you've got to be careful about generalizing right, from healthy San Francisco to the rest of the United States. I'll just add on the unemployed, I think it's important to kind of recognize. So this um, this opinion didn't necessarily address it, but the individual mandate is, I think, you know, part of uh, thinking about that, which is that right now if you become unemployed, you can uh, purchase, uh, if you had health insurance, you can pick it up through COBRA. It's just tremendously expensive. Many people don't do it. Uh, Ken Jacobs is here from the UC La- uh, Berkeley Labor Center who's been doing a lot of work on making sure that people who are unemployed will be able to get into the health exchange and get subsidies or be able to, if they may qualify uh, for Medi-Cal, and I think that will be a really important uh, piece of this, which is to make sure that people uh, have the opportunity to get the help they need so they can remain um, insured when they're unemployed. Okay, next, over here, yeah, go ahead. The discussion is of uh, cost is centered largely on, a, on additional costs to the state so far. What about savings? I, I thought the idea was that with people not using emergency rooms, uh, that that would be a source of reduced costs. And I guess my question is, really, who pays now for those uh, emergency, uh, high-cost emergency room visits that will presumably not be so necessary? 
Okay, let Steve, me, you yeah, want to speak to start, that? Start off with, with that one. I mean, who, who pays now is all of us. We, we pay through our health, higher health insurance premiums. Uh, the hospitals eat some of it because et cetera, but what they tend to do then is, is um, if they can't get reimbursed from uh, the Medi-Cal program or the Medicare program, uh, you know, it goes to the private sector side, and they're, uh, it depends on the market power they have as they deal with the insurers and so forth and so on. Uh, so we're, we're paying now. So here, here's, here's the big hope. Um, it's very, very difficult in our country as opposed to many of the European countries where they have more centralized governments that once they decide politically and from a policy perspective to move in a certain direction, right, they can implement, Okay. We can't do that in this country. We're 50 different states, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea of these incentives that I talked about earlier to change how we pay hospitals and doctors and give them an incentive for cost-effective care using evidence-based medicine, all these wonderful things, right, it's going to depend on how fast those can roll out and get implemented across the 50 states or even within our state here in California. And to the extent those kick in and we start looking at delivering health care radically differently, we're going to continue to see our costs grow, right? Over time, though, they might begin to attenuate, but it's going to depend on how rapidly all of this can get implemented. So I'll be concrete. We have a group uh, here called uh, that we're helping to work with leaders up and down in the state called the Berkeley Forum on Reforming California's Healthcare Delivery System. And if you look between now in 2012 and the year 2020, for expenditure growth in our state, we'd like to see maybe some of this go to education, for example, and other things other than to health care. If you look at what we're going to have to do in this state to bring in our expenditure growth in health care to simply match California's domestic product growth, gross domestic product growth in the state, right? Just to match that, we're going to have to reduce our health care expenditures about $3 billion a year each year between now and 2020. Uh, And leadership in the state and actually uh, in government are, are going to try to see if we can take that on. But that's what it's going to mean. So we have to change behavior. It's not just about avoiding unnecessary hospital admissions or readmissions. It's about, like, doing away with doctor visits. You know, a lot of doctor visits are totally unnecessary. Let's blow up the whole care model. Kaiser Permanente has that as a strategic priority. They reduced physician office visits last year something like 25% in some of their regions. Because with chronic illness, we have to take care of ourselves mostly, guidance from physicians and nurses and so forth. We have modern technology, these cell phones and other kinds of things, home monitoring devices, et cetera, et cetera. We need to think radically differently about how healthcare is delivered in the 21st century, and in many respects, we have a 19th century delivery system. We skipped the Industrial Revolution in healthcare delivery, right? We're way past that now. We're in the knowledge information economy, and we're trying to play catch up. Okay, next. Anybody else want to ask a question? Yes. Well, we're going to come over with a microphone so we can hear who you are. Thank you. Um, after the decision was announced, I heard um, people who, were, who advocate for a single-payer system coming out on both sides. I heard people saying, this is a terrible setback for what we want to accomplish, and other people saying, this is a great stepping stone toward getting actual universal coverage. I mean, what the law really does is provide more 
customers for insurance companies. So I'm wondering if anybody on the panel has an opinion about which, which of those people I heard might be correct. I'm happy to take the first uh, crack at that, um, which is that I, I think that the ironic thing is that, you know, the single-payer system is clearly constitutional. So if you think about uh, Medicare, for example, which is that the federal government has a right to set up a program that everybody can participate in, and um, that's if you – one of the ideas on the table in terms of single-payer was to expand Medicare for all, so not just for the elderly population but for everybody. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that everyone was thinking about when they were looking at this case is, you know, well, why didn't they just do it? So I don't think that this, in some sense, I don't think that the single-payer question is a is a question that's necessarily related to this case. It's really a political question. And so your question uh, is, you know, politically, maybe this is um, John, um, our political scientist, uh, may be able to answer this better, but I think the, the question really is, is there a political appetite for this? And so I think some of what you're hearing is that there could be more of a political appetite for it if, in fact, uh, the exchanges... Depending on the behavior of the private market and what's happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis the exchanges, but I think it's more of a question of how implementation occurs. So I don't know if Brad or John have anything to add to that. Only that it won't happen. Nineteen seventy-four. <laughs> uh, I was a congressional fellow uh, working in the first year of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, healthcare expenditures in the United States had become unsustainable because we'd reached seven percent of GDP. Why can't we do 30? Remember, you're talking about people who, who, in the healthcare business, who are very wealthy compared to what they would be in other societies. Take a doctor, take a nurse, take a person who runs a machine, who, you know, gives you a pill, take the equivalent person in any European country, and the U.S. person makes a lot more. They're going to fight to the death to keep those resources for themselves. You know, so I, I think really you know, it's very difficult. I guess I, that's where I come to because I think we're willing to put up with all the inefficiencies that Steve and others can talk about. Uh, one, because it's the American way, and two, because we have a lot of people who are doing very well by that. Even implementing the Affordable Care Act will be very difficult in California. I brought this because I loved it. What's next? And then it said inside it said California most prepared, California most challenged. Okay, we have the strongest, strictest restrictions on scope of practice by non-physicians in the United States. How do you think we're going to provide services to all those newly insured with that kind of legal and regulatory structure? I should have written a letter to the editor. Okay. Next question. Okay. Well, I guess that sort of approaches my question about why there isn't more of an effort in the Affordable Care Act to increase the supply of medical practitioners um, my understanding is that, you know, the government involvement in medical education is really limited, and you have this whole group of people who have this great sense of entitlement for their sacrifice, and also that California, my understanding is, is it actually is more effective in implementing business practices in medicine, especially in the Bay Area because of the relative oversupply of people who want to practice here and having their contracts not renewed by the HMOs if they overprescribe, and also that the ACOs are more effective among the older doctors who already have theirs who aren't trying to pay back bills. So why isn't there more of an effort to increase medical availability? 
Well, Massachusetts has been fairly successful at vacuuming up nurses and doctors from the rest of the Northeast, from Puerto Rico and from the Philippines. I think I would just add um, that this is a, a huge problem to expand primary care. And when we look at that, it's not just uh, primary care physicians. It's nurse practitioners. It's pharmacists. It's social workers. It's nutritionists. It's uh, community health workers. Um, and what uh, Anne-Marie put her finger on, one of the things that uh, we have to address in the state is the scope of practice laws. And there are some people who want to approach that again for maybe the 21st time, and others think that, uh, you know, it's a non-starter still, uh, but that remains to be seen. I think in terms of uh, what, what John has said about when we talk about bending the cost curve and removing relative resources going to the medical and healthcare sector, the other side of that, those are people's incomes. It's not just wealthy you know, physicians or whatever, it's incomes of a lot of healthcare professionals as well. But at some point, I think we're going to reach the tipping point in this country. And I don't know if it's 18% or we got to go to 2025, but you got to look at it the other way. What are we getting for the investment? Okay, we're not a very healthy nation. Now, you can't hang all of that on the medical healthcare delivery system. Okay, again, a lot of that is around the communities we live in. And it has to do with transportation and housing and education and the investment we need to make in that, okay, so we don't even need to put this burden on this sort of malfunctioning delivery system. The problem with that argument is it's long run, and we don't live for the long run. You know, it's immediate gratification. This prevention stuff isn't going to save costs tomorrow or make me better tomorrow, then I'm not going to invest in it, you know, kind of thing. So we need to think more creatively about incentives to change that around as well. And a lot of it's beginning to occur. Some of the foundations in the state are stepping up. Uh, some of the other groups in the state are stepping up. But it's a matter of getting to, to the tipping point, and we may not be there yet. Perhaps there's more pain before we're going to get there. But at some point, I really do believe we're going to begin to make some decisions very, very differently. We will expand scope of practice law in this state, for example, and we will have various programs to create more community health workers who can do a lot of different stuff. We have a wonderful pool of the promotoris, for example, in our population, who with additional training could do a lot more uh, in terms of actually working with people on their health than is being done now. Yes. Uh, let's get the mic. Who has the mic? Right here. Raise your hand. Question for Professor Chopra there. You started to go into this on the other aspects and then got cut off at the end, but what are the implications for other areas of law and policy of the Medicaid ruling? I think about environmental regulation, which is widely done through congressional purse strings, and are we going to see some implications that go way beyond health care for that piece of the ruling? The, let me start back just a half a step. The court under Chief Justice Rehnquist and now Chief Justice Roberts, uh, with a, uh, a growing intensity of the, uh, the, the, the conservative wing of the court, which is a majority, has not, I, I, I mean, I don't think, I think they may be market-oriented just as a personal matter, uh, but their major approach 
in, in terms of interpreting the Constitution is to strengthen the notion that the national government is a government of limited power. States' rights, uh, if you will. They've cut back some, even I mean, before this case. I think this case does very little, as I indicated, in cutting back the scope of the Commerce Clause. Uh, the major source of federal power that would have appeared, that appeared to give the federal government continuing virtually unlimited power was a spending power. Uh, what you couldn't demand, uh, you could buy. Uh, and you could make the, 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 the cost, the purchase cost of what you're buying so attractive that, as they said in this case, you couldn't turn it down. Uh, I'm amazed to hear. I mean, it, it really takes a deep uh, political philosophy to be in Texas and Florida and to turn down free Medicaid expansion for the next five or six years. I, uh, let, let me say this. I can't believe it, but there are lots of things I can't believe that happen. Uh, but, but, I mean, but that's just contrary to all human nature. But now they've said there's a limit to this. And the limit, as I say, coercion, that's uh, it, undefined whether it's coercive or not. Uh, uh, Professor DeLong doesn't see a difference between 5% of highway funds. That was plenty coercive itself. As you put it, one state hung up, uh, 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 stood out for a while, and then they, they, they collapsed for 5%. Uh, but, but this was no 5%. This was 10 to 15% of the annual budget of the state. Uh, that was powerful medicine. But they, this, this is just the beginning, and to the, they, they may continue to do that and cut back on the spending power. Yeah, and, and I'll just add one thing to that. Um, one of the interesting conversations that I think is going on in this opinion, I think it's very important that we distinguish what happened with the four dissenters and what happened with Chief Justice Roberts, which is that the four dissenters, you'll, you'll note, said that they would have held all of the Medicaid expansion to be unconstitutional, not just the penalty part. And in their, um, in their dissent, they made a very big deal about how much money this was. And so um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, called them out on this and said, so are you saying to me that as you give more money to the uh, states, that that's just giving them money in itself is coercive. And that's what the, the four dissenters are essentially saying. I think that is terribly problematic. It's very good that uh, Chief Justice did not go along with it this time, but I think that that may be part of the conversation going forward, which is in very, very large programs, um, how much does it matter that the money is so large that what the dissenters are saying is that who would possibly turn that down? Well, at least we actually have some examples now that there's some who, who are actually turning it down. I don't know if that helps in the jurisprudence. But I think, Ken, you're right that we have a lot to look about, look at, not just in health law, but in the environment, in education, for example. We have Title VI and Title IX, uh, where we uh, put uh, you know, civil rights requirements, we put gender requirements on our institutions. Uh, so lots and lots of things to look at as we go forward. Can I say something? Uh, and then we can turn the, you can give the mic over there, because uh, budgeting is my area. You have to understand that health care expenditures is the huge pack person eating up every public sector budget in the United States. Uh, if the federal government has a problem on the expenditure side, it's not Social Security. It's health care. 
okay? And since the end of World War II, Uwe Reinhardt has a shtick that he does, where he does his kids do little pictures of elephants running wild through the jungle, stopping down everything at 3% real per year, okay? I mean, healthcare expenditures as a society, it's not a public versus private thing, are just increasing faster than the economy, and no one in the United States is willing to do what is necessary to stop that. Okay, for a variety of reasons that people have touched on. So this is going to be a continuing program, and everybody says, well, there has to be a point, but we don't know what that is. But obviously there has to be a point, 100%, I guess, is the point. Okay. Uh, Yes, you had Hi, I had a question. Um, Maybe you can help me sort my thoughts out here a little bit, but I um, am connected with a union that represents journalists and the media industry is changing, a lot of people are losing their jobs, and they're not so much becoming unemployed, but underemployed as they become freelancers. So do you have any comment about, you know, how are these persons who may not be at federal poverty level going to become eligible for health care, and is there something that might incentivize employers to not fully cut people loose when they do a reduction in force, but somehow keep their you know, COBRA eligible, but COBRA only lasts 18 to 27 months. You know, what happens after that? You know, like I said, I haven't completely figured out my thoughts here, but do you guys have any thoughts on, you know, freelancers? What are we going to do? And also the impacts on collective bargaining as well. Well, the the two big problems if you're a freelancer or even if you're a small businessman have always been first... um, that actually shopping for a health care plan and then providing the insurance company with the documentation it wants is burdensome and time-consuming. Um, you don't have a benefits department. Um, I, as a Berkeley professor, have a benefits department. There are how many floors of people over in University two, two Hall? Minutes. Three floors of people in University Hall who simply do nothing but run interference for all the rest of us vis-a-vis the health insurance companies. And there's no way that a small business or a single proprietor can afford to effectively comparative shop, let alone appeal a denial. Um, What the exchanges are supposed to do is they're going to say you don't have a benefits department on your own because the bureaucracy you work for or you don't like the benefits department. Come to the exchange. The exchange will be your benefits department. Um, And so that will get rid of one of the huge obstacles to freelancers getting insurance. Um, The second big obstacle is that, of course, if you're a large bureaucracy, you're a statistical universe. The health insurance company can turn its actuaries loose on your population and chant it through and say, all right, as long as the um, bureaucracy is paying at least 50% off the top of the health care cost, everyone will sign up, and so we can figure out what the cost of covering these people will be. And we're an insurance company. We're happy to accept the residual risk. Here's a price for the insurance, an open option to all of your employees to sign up for our particular HMO or PPO or fee-for-service plan or whatever. And occasionally it does work badly that some huge numbers of people sign up, sick people sign up for one plan rather than another when they're all given the option at open enrollment because the sick people want the higher coverage, but most of the time it works. That doesn't work if you're a single proprietor or a small business. You go to the insurance company, the insurance company says, why do you want insurance? Are you sick? We're going to charge you an outrageous price. 
And if you come back and say, well, yes, I want insurance, even though you're charging me an outrageous price, the insurance company then says, my God, you must be really, really sick. Um, You must be incredibly expensive. We're going to charge you an extraordinarily outrageous price because we know the fact that you were willing to pay the outrageous price means it was a bad deal for us to offer you an even outrageous price, and so we're charging you a much more kind of one. That at one point, my mother, as a healthy, single psychotherapist in Cabin John, Maryland, was paying more for her catastrophic health insurance program than the four of us were paying for our family plan, even when you add in all the money Berkeley was paying on our behalf, precisely because they wouldn't believe that she wanted health insurance simply because she was an anxious, middle-aged person. Um, but said you must be sick or you wouldn't be going for this. Um, the Affordable Care Act is supposed to get rid of that. And the reason that there is um, a personal responsibility principle, this rock-ribbed foundation of conservative Republican orthodoxy in America, Mitt Romney's proudest crown jewel of his substantive policymaking um, efforts, The reason that this individual mandate, personal responsibility, 100% Republican right-wing Mitt Romney thing is in the Affordable Care Act is precisely to make sure that once the exchanges get up and running, that they can properly present themselves to insurance companies as a calculable statistical universe. And so insurance companies won't charge the exchanges higher prices than they charge bureaucracies like UC Human Resources. I should also add, depending on where you are in the income range, there are subsidies here. And you should not, you know, that'll vary from year to year. And I don't know exactly how that'll work. But if you have a journalist who gets fired and is trying to get through as a freelancer, probably they don't make a great deal of money. And so the Affordable Care Act does have significant subsidies for those folks to afford insurance. It's up to 400 percent of poverty. So it is, it does, you know, get higher. Which is 70000 a year in California, at least. Hey, that's more than any journalist makes coming out of our <laughs> So there you go. And I'll, I'll just make the addendum that the idea that somehow we should look back and expect for additional obligations to be placed on employers who then become former employers to continue coverage, I really think that the Affordable Care Act looked at broadly is a capitulation to the detachment of health insurance from the workplace, ultimately. Not, not that direction, the other way more and more people moving to the exchange, health care coverage, more and more people working in what, what you described as a new economy job, right? Uncertainty, eat what you kill. Okay, so more and more people in those kinds of jobs, all right, and therefore more and more people in the exchange, and this connects to the person longing for single payer in a very incrementalist way when those people get there, and the 40% of them who believe there is going to be a government-sponsored health insurance option in the exchange don't find one, you may have your moment. Yeah. Uh, the, alter- the alternative universe, right, in this Star Trek-y alternative universe in which Spock has a beard and <laughs> Mitt Romney is president and the Affordable Care Act went through as Romney Care in 2010 rather than as Obamacare in 2010. Right now, every single Republican at the Heritage Foundation, at the Cato Institute, at the American Enterprise Institute, is right now storming the country, saying that because of the exchange, people who want to be entrepreneurial are no longer locked into their jobs because they don't dare leave their bureaucracy to follow their dream because they'll be eaten up by the health insurance. That if you want to kind of 
a system that is friendly to freelancers. It's precisely one that divorces gaining social insurance benefits from your attachment to a large bureaucracy, which was the system that Henry Kaiser landed us in back in 1943 when he was desperate to find a way to pay his workers more that the War Labor Board wouldn't come down on him and whomp him for. Okay, someone had a question over here. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could explain what the 2012 election might mean in terms of the impact of the Affordable Care Act. Not to make anybody have to predict the future, but really what are the options um, in case you know, there is you know, a difference in the political landscape when it comes to um, potential for repeal via executive order or um, you know, regular majority or what would be filibuster-proof and what provisions you perhaps see as more tenuous than others? It's my field, so I'll give you an answer. Uh, let's assume Romney's president. Let's assume the Republicans maintain control of the House and have a majority in the Senate, but not 60 votes. Okay? Uh, in that case, everything depends on how you interpret a technique called reconciliation, which is a technique which was used, for example, to push the Bush tax cuts through. Um, it only affects those things that uh, relate to the budget. Uh, but in that case, if you use the budgetary mechanism through reconciliation, you can pass your budget with a simple majority vote, not a supermajority vote. That then gets to the question of what part, say you want to undo, Romney wants to undo all of the Affordable Care Act. Different parts of it go, are under different budgetary rules. Okay, some of it uh, is what we now call mandated spending, what we used to call entitlement spending. Uh, that part will require reconciliation. But there are other parts of it that require an annual appropriation. If it require an annual appropriation, a lot of Republicans saying they want to starve the beast to death. And it's easier for them to do that because obviously the uh, public choice is different because it's harder to get something passed than it is to stop it. So they could, there are some of them are simply talking about not funding the bureaucrats that will have to fill out the forms for the exchange, exchanges. So uh, most people assume that even if the, Repub if the Republicans don't control all three units there and do not have a, a supermajority in the Senate, then it's going to be very messy over time. And it's going to be sort of a, a long campaign on the part of conservatives uh, to slow, slowly strangle it. But as they do that, they'll make it much more inefficient, obviously. And can I just add to that, John? So I worked in the Clinton administration, the, the final two years of the Clinton administration, and did a number of uh, regulations that as soon as the Bush administration came in, they suspended them and then ultimately overturned many of them. I think that's a really important point, um, you know, certainly if you look at uh, administrative law and what's going on here. Um, I look at Ken Jacobs, who knows of the amount of time and energy that those who are health experts are spending on these regulations to make sure that they get them right so that they can be um, as pro in increasing um, access as possible, uh, what I think you will see is even before they get to what John is outlining, which is the um, what can they do with Congress, they're going to immediately be looking at all of the regulations that have been put into effect. They're going to be putting out notice of proposed rulemaking, which is to say that they're going to start um, rewriting those regulations uh, quite quickly to make them restrictive. And I think that's um, going to be the first battle, which is a, a, the battle of the administrative lawyers uh, and those who uh, 
who will see very uh, severe restrictions in um, how they um, define the health exchanges, what they do in terms of the subsidies, all of these pieces I think you will see um, severe restrictions on. Okay. Um, I want to thank you all. that We've used up our time. This has been great, and I appreciate it very much, and I appreciate the law school for giving us the room here. I thank the Goldman School for sponsoring this, and I thank the uh, RWJ Program in Health Policy Research for sponsoring it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.